I want to talk with you this morning for a few moments about something that's very relevant to us. Uh, I hope we will understand it and see it as such. And that is, I want to talk about the emotions of Jesus. The emotions of Jesus. Now, there were two schools of thought in the early Christian world that uh, to be a Christian, you were to be a stoa, part of the school of stoa, from which we get our word stoic. And uh, the theme of that group was apatheia, which means apathetic, no feeling. The other group of Christians believed that you were to be a group of pathos, Greek word, from which we get our word compassion or pathetic or passion. And uh, both of those tendencies are still uh, prevalent in people's minds and people's hearts. Consequently, there are a lot of misconceptions uh, about Jesus. Uh, there are those who believe that Jesus was a gentle Jesus, meek and mild. And for, for weak, meek, they really mean weak. Uh, and a proper understanding of those words are true. But that's not all there is to or about Jesus. Uh, John Calvin said, Those who imagine the Son of God was exempt from human passions do not acknowledge him to be a man. He was God. He was man. He had many emotions. We'll not have time to touch on all of them, but I want to touch on some of the predominant ones. We read in the book of Hebrews, 14th verse of the 4th chapter, Therefore, since we have a great high priest, referring to Jesus, of course, who has gone through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith we profess. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses. But we have one who was tempted, tested, in every way, as we are, yet without sin. Let us then approach the throne of grace with confidence, so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need, our time of testing, our time of temptation. Calvin's words again, appropriate to hear. Those who imagine the Son of God was exempt from human passions do not acknowledge him to be a man. He was a man. He was God's man. But he had all of the emotions and all of the passions and all of the desires that every one of us in this room has. Those desires, those passions are not evil per se. They are not evil in and of themselves. They are only evil as to how we express them. And how we use them. And so I want to be more like Jesus. You do too or you wouldn't be here. And one of the ways to be more like him is to have the same emotional responses to life that Jesus did. For you see, all of his emotional responses were prompted by, tempered by, directed by the Holy Spirit. For he was sinless. So he had the same emotions, the same drives, the same desires that we have, but with his sinless nature he was able to provide a strength for those desires and those attractions that made them creative rather than destructive. 
And therefore, if I want to be like him and to be filled with his spirit, that means that I will consequently have the same emotional responses to the world around me that Jesus had. We, keep, we say we want to be like Jesus. Well, I want to be like Jesus. I need to feel like Jesus felt under certain stimulating circumstances. I need to respond as Jesus responded emotionally. And we see many of those emotions manifested uh, in the Scripture. I want to mention a few. There are many more. If you'd like to follow a study on this, I'd be glad to point you to some of the sources I've been involved in the last few weeks as I have pursued this, for me, with a great deal of interest. Uh, Jesus was angry. It's the difference between being anger, angry and being mad. Jesus was angry at times. Paul later commented, said, Be ye angry and sin not. In other words, it is proper to be angry, but not to let it degenerate into sin. And that will be uh, how we delineate the difference here as we look at Jesus. Third chapter of the Gospel of Mark. And incidentally, I'm only touching on some of the examples in Scripture of each one of these emotions of our Lord. He declared the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. Another time he went into the synagogue and a man with a shriveled hand was there. And some of them were looking for a reason to accuse Jesus. So they watched him closely. See, it was the Sabbath. Watched him closely to see if he would heal him, this man, this man with the withered hand, on the Sabbath. Jesus said to the man with the shriveled hand, come up here. Stand up here beside me. He stood up in front of everyone. Then Jesus asked them, which is lawful on the Sabbath, to do good or to do evil? To save life or to kill. But they remained silent. He looked around at them in anger. He looked around at them in anger and deeply distressed. And that word means a physical expression of distress deeply distressed at the hardness of their heart, stubborn hearts. He said to the man, stretch out your hand. He stretched it out, and his hand was completely restored. Then the Pharisees went out and began to plot with the Herodians how they might kill Jesus. Why did Jesus get angry? Look at another example, 10th chapter of Mark, 13th verse. People were bringing little children to Jesus to have him touch them, but the disciples rebuked them, rebuked the parents and the children. When Jesus saw this, he was indignant. He said to them, to his disciples, you let those children come to me. For if such is the kingdom of God, and except you become like them, you're not going to enter the kingdom of God. In uh, the 11th chapter of John, Jesus was at the tomb of Lazarus, and Lazarus was dead. 
And there were mourners there, superficial, many of them, paid mourners. And Jesus, twice in that 11th chapter of John, it says that Jesus was deeply distressed, deeply distressed. Over what? I believe he was deeply distressed over the artificiality and the hypocrisy of paid mourners, but he was also deeply distressed over death and what did the people. Here is the key. In every instance of Jesus' anger, which we find in the Scripture, it is never anger because of what has been done to him. Never angry because of what is being said about him. The criticisms, which were many, multitudinous, never angry over anything personally done to him. Succinctly stated, here it is. He was angry over a rigid orthodoxy, custom, tradition that would impose needless suffering upon anybody. He was angry at any one or any institution or any accumulated thought in the form of a tradition that would impose pain upon somebody. How awful to do that as they were doing in the name of the God of love. And it angered him. It should anger us. An injustice done. Think about the world of today in terms of children. Child abuse. Jesus' statement about taking care of the, the least of these, the little ones. People that would hinder children from coming to Jesus. Or people would hurt, that would hurt little children. Horrible event this week, this week in our city, wasn't it? Little child, little infant killed. Well, our society today says those parents or that parent, whoever it was, the parents who sexually abuse or physically abuse children are sick. Well, they may be sick, but let me tell you, they better get well quickly. And they better get well at the hands of the great physician in a hurry. Because Jesus said it would be better that a millstone be hanged around your neck and you be thrown in the sea than that you'd hurt some little child. And so I would say to anyone here who has a tendency to child abuse, it may be sickness, it may be something that uh, psychologically in your life, but if you have that tendency, let me urge you in the name of God to get right with God and to get with a right counselor who can help you deal with that. Otherwise, God is already measuring you with a 15 and a half, 34 millstone. I do not say that as a threat for me. I say it as a word from God. I don't know what could be worse than having a millstone placed around your neck and be thrown in Canyon Lake. I don't know what could be worse than that, but Jesus said that's what's going to happen to people who hurt children. And we need to apply that not just to what we do, or individuals do individually, but what our culture does. 
what our state budget does, what our federal budget does in regard to the welfare, to the safety, the education, the protection, and the health for little children. Made Jesus angry. What happens to a lot of us is that we sometimes take our practice, our particular practice that we grow up with or we're taught, and we elevate that practice to a principle, and then we absolutize that principle and uh, apply it to everybody. Something that is a preference for us or a practice for us, we turn into a principle. And then we absolutize that principle and say, uh, this is true for everybody. That can happen. That's exactly what happened to these people. These were not bad people. These were people who had gotten some misunderstanding about and some misinterpretations of God and the nature of God, and they elevated those practices, those customs, those traditions, to the level of moral principles, and then they applied those across the board to everybody, and as a result, Jesus came along and it made him angry that in the name of religion, in the name of rigid orthodoxy, in the name of tradition, needless suffering would be imposed upon people. It angered him. When I have to stop here and ask myself a question, and I ask you to ask yourself a question, as we have an attitude adjustment time here uh, in these moments together, is Jesus pleased or angry at our attitudes? Is he pleased or angry at our attitudes? Toward outsiders, people who are different, different color, different culture, different behavior. It's attitude check time. Not with Buckner, but with God. Jesus got angry. He also often is described as being a man of great joy and imparting great joy. In fact, the angels promised that when he was born. I've come to bring you good tidings of great joy. Great joy. Jesus was a happy man. Joyful man. Hebrews 12, 2 says, Fix your eyes upon Jesus. For it was he who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and sat down at the right hand of the Father. For joy, joy, Jesus endured the cross. He didn't enjoy the cross. He didn't stay perennially on the cross. He passed through that to the Father's right hand. And it was for the joy that was set before him and the same joy that's set before us that we endure whatever comes into our hearts and in our lives, knowing that we too will not be perennially imprisoned there upon that cross, but we too will pass through into the Father's eternal presence. For the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross, despising the shame, and sat down at the right hand of God.
You read in the uh, 10th chapter of the Gospel of Luke, when the disciples went out and preached, the 70 were sent out to preach, and they came back, and they were so excited about what happened over and over. They said they greatly rejoiced, greatly rejoiced, greatly, greatly rejoiced. In Luke, the 7th chapter, 31st verse, following have a touch of the humor of jesus there's a lot of it in the bible but we don't see it often it sort of gets obscured often by the by by uh an antiquated language but listen you have a wonderful touch here of the humor of jesus to what then can i compare the people of this generation what are they like they're like children sitting in the marketplace and calling out to each other. We played the flute for you, and you did not dance. We sang a dirge, and you did not cry. For John the Baptist came neither eating bread nor drinking wine, and you say, he has a demon. The Son of Man came eating and drinking, and you say, here is a glutton and a drunkard a friend of tax collectors and sinners. He said, some of you folks just don't want to be happy or sad. You don't want to play wedding or funeral. You're just not willing to play at all. I don't know whether you pick it up or not in stuff you read and things you hear about our culture today, but I think we have a lot of Pouting crybabies in American culture today. Boy, there's some things that have never been as good. And we're afraid to rejoice. We don't want to play wedding. And there's some sad things. We don't want to deal with that. We're just going to back off and pout. Not participate. Pout. Now, what may be cute at two is atrocious at 20. What may be acceptable in a five-year-old is not attractive in a 50-year-old. Jesus said, come on. There are good things that are happening. He said in the 15th chapter of John, these things have I spoken unto you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may overflow. That my joy, there's an emotion of Jesus that he wants to impart into us, transfuse into us, that our joy may overflow. That's one of the emotions and attitudes of Jesus that he wants to impart to us, and that's one of the fruits of the Spirit, love and joy and peace and all of those marvelous attributes. Jesus was a man of joy. Do we have his joy? Will we, will we allow ourselves to overflow with his joy? I cannot, I cannot spell his name. He's a German theologian by the name of uh, what it looks like in German is something sort of like Schlesings. He said to be sad in the presence of Jesus is an existential impossibility. You can know sorrow, and you can know sadness, but you shall not be sad in your existence in Christ. 
and your existence in his joy and your existence as being, as Sandra Sale saying a moment ago, held in his hand and your existence in the presence of God forever. For the joy that's set before us, we like our Lord, will endure whatever happens and despise the shame and know that someday we will triumph over that and sit at the right hand of God the Father. Another emotion of Jesus is sadness, sorrow. He was a man of sorrow, but I would remind you that that's not a New Testament description of Jesus. In the Garden of Gethsemane, he did greatly sorrow with deep agony. I don't know how long it has been since you agonized in prayer over someone But if you ever have, you know how deep that can be. Someone ill, someone hurt, someone hurting themselves. I've done that. An agonizing time in, in your life. Jesus understands that. He had that emotion. Deeply concerned. He to the point of sweating great drops of blood. And here to me is one of the most interesting emotions of Jesus. What amazed Jesus? What amazed Jesus? What made Jesus say, Wow. One way Jesus marvel. Well, the word is used a number of times, but twice it will fit our purpose this morning. One was when he went back to Nazareth, his hometown, where he'd grown up, where he'd gone to the synagogue. These people worshipped God. They were all children of the promise. They all knew the Old Testament scriptures. They all worshipped every Sabbath. And he showed up, and they asked him to read the scripture, and he did, and he said, today the scripture is fulfilled in your ears. And he went on to delineate and to speak, and they were so angered at him, they were so frustrated at him that they took him out and were going to kill him. And the scripture says Jesus was amazed at their unbelief. Amazed at their unbelief with all of the background they had, with all of the potential which they had, with all of the information which they had, with all of the cultural conditioning which was theirs, with all of the scripture they'd heard through the years, they still didn't believe, and he said, I'm amazed. And he left, never went back. The other event that I want to point out is when Jesus was called by a Roman centurion, no Jew, no Jewish background, no understanding of the scripture. He said, my child is sick and I, I want you to come help me. And then he sent his servants to Jesus saying, you don't need to come in person. I'm a man of authority myself and I tell this soldier to go and another one to go here and to do that. You have the authority to do it. Just tell my child to be well. And Jesus did. And Jesus said, this is amazing. 
Hear this man who is not an Israelite, who has this profound faith. Jesus was amazed at the faith of a Roman centurion, of an outsider. He was amazed at the lack of faith on the part of people who were supposed to be the sons and daughters of promise and of faith. I had to stop and ask the question, is Jesus amazed at I, us today and as a church and as individuals? Is he amazed at our lack of faith? With all the potential that we have, with all the background that we have, with all the church that we've had in our, in our years of nurturing, with all the Bibles that we have and all the Sunday school lessons that we've heard and all the sermons that we've heard, with Vision 2000 looking us in the face, what kind of faith do we have? Is he amazed at what we're talking about doing by the year 2000? Is he amazed positively or negatively? I don't know, but I want to know his mind and his heart. I want to amaze him with faith, not lack of it. And I wonder if he looks at our plans and says, is that all you think you can do with my power in you? With all of the tremendous people that are part of this fellowship, with the education they have and the influence they have, the resources they have and the talents that they have. You mean to tell me that's all you're going to do? Are you talking about molehills or mountains to move? What, what does our faith, what kind of emotion does our faith create in the mind and the heart of our Lord? I pray he will be amazed at the magnitude of our faith. I need, to, I need to come to the last one here. I want to talk about the, the, the attribute, the emotion most often used to describe Jesus in the Bible. By far, above all others, is the emotion of compassion. Without any question, compassion is the primary emotion in Jesus' life. It translated itself into commitment to people, to do God's will, a passion passion to do the will of God. Listen to him. Listen to him as a 12-year-old boy. When his family came back looking for him and he was in the temple. And they said, where, where were you? You upset us. He said, don't you know? Listen to this. I must be about my father's business. That's what I'm called to do. I must do this. 
You hear those words on his lips a number of times in the Bible. He said, I must go to Samaria. That was out of limits. That's off bounds. Out of bounds. You were supposed, Jews weren't supposed to go to Samaria. But Jesus was going not only to break down those walls of prejudice, he was going to meet a woman who was in trouble in her life and who needed help, and he said, I must do it. And it upset his disciples. Upset them even more when they came back and found him talking to this Samaritan woman who'd been married five times and was now living with a man who wasn't her husband. Do we have that kind of, I must do this. I must go. I must be about my father's business. I must go to Samaria, which is just across the street between us and town as far as where people sit in need as well as around the world. We must do it. That compassion in Jesus. He said, I, the Son of Man, must suffer many things of the chief priests, elders, and scribes, and be killed and be raised again the third day. I must do that. That cross is my call to save the world. I must do it. compassion. When you look through your New Testament, you read through your New Testament with the eyes of the emotions of Jesus, you will never hear Jesus turn a deaf ear to a needy cry. Never. The cry of the lowliest creature will stop Jesus in his tracks. Bartimaeus, blind, beggar, refuse of society, ostracized to the outskirts of Jericho, called and Jesus stopped. Simon Peter, after a great act of faith, began to be afraid and started to slip beneath the waters. And he cried out, Lord, save me or I perish. And Jesus reached out and took his hand. Zacchaeus climbed up a tree and Jesus and he met. And Jesus took a detour just to spend some time with Zacchaeus. The hungry, the hurting, the broken-hearted widow carrying her son to the grave. Jesus raised him from the dead. Mary and Martha crying over the death of Lazarus and cried out for Jesus. He came. Let me tell you, you cry out to him and he'll show up before you blink your eyes. Call upon me, he said, and I will answer you and show you great and mighty things which you have never known. Scripture says that Jesus saw a great crowd one day, and he said, I see that great crowd as sheep without a shepherd. He had compassion on that great crowd. Now, I assume that the presence of every one of us here today 
is motivated by the fact that we're calling upon the Lord. When you go to someone's house, you call upon them. Well, you have called upon the house of the Lord today. And he looked at you, and he looked at me, and he looked at all of us, and he sees us as sheep who need a leader, a shepherd. Pastors are not shepherds. We're under shepherds. We just work for the shepherd. But if you've come here today with a call of a hurt in your heart, he'll hear you. And he will answer you. And he will do great and mighty things in your life. He says, I will show you great and mighty things. It is interesting to note if you study the word compassion, the meaning of the word is used in the New Testament. It has two meanings. One internal, the other external. One a feeling and the other an act. Jesus never let his compassion die inside. Never. It was always expressing itself in action, in touching, in lifting up, in forgiving, in blessing. Never just an abstract, subjective emotion. That is compassion kind of compassion that Jesus had always translates into action. Many years ago, a woman by the name of Dorothea Dix was asked to substitute teaching to Sunday school in a church in Massachusetts, East Cambridge. Uh, that doesn't sound like a very exciting thing for somebody to do, but it turned out to be one of the most historical events in recent history. Dorothea Dix went in to teach this class of four little children, all of whom were mentally deficient. And she found out that those four children were locked in jail cells like animals. And Dorothea Dix exploded. And she began a crusade that crossed America and the world and changed the laws for the mentally ill. And there are millions of people today who when they hear or read the letters A.D. do not think of the day of the Lord, they think of Esther Dix. A woman who had compassion and translated it into transformation of laws and of lives to make a difference in the world. How does my compassion measure up to Jesus? Anger, joy, sorrow, Amazement, 
compassion. Oh God, give us your emotions. Help us to realize that through your Holy Spirit you are to be internalized in each one of us and we are therefore to begin progressively to express in our world the same emotions, the same actions that you express in your day and in your time. Lord, we really want to be like you. Now give us the faith and the courage to be like you. Would you come this morning to trust him as your Lord and Savior? Would you come this morning in a rededication and commitment of your heart and life to him? Would you come this morning to say, I desire to be a part of this church. I feel at home here. I feel that here they, you all try to express the love and the grace of God to anybody and everybody, and that includes me. Well, it does. Make indifference who you are or what you are or what you're not. 